Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Testosterone is a hormone that has long been mythologized and misunderstood. That's the argument of today's guest, Carol Hooven. She's a Harvard evolutionary biologist who joined us in conversation with Tom Whipple, science editor of The Times, to debunk the myths of the hormone associated with masculinity. It's a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation which touches on a lot of topics which have been in the news in recent years. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link with the Intelligence Square discount on Carol's new book in the podcast description. And now let's go to the episode. Hello, thank you very much for joining us this evening and welcome again to this Intelligence Squared Plus event. Um, I am delighted to introduce Carol Hooven. She is co-director in the Department of Ev- Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, and her research is focused on behavioural endocrinology, which is how hormones shape behaviour, for over 20 years, and she has received numerous teaching awards. I'm, I'm particularly interested to chat to her about testosterone this evening, because just, just today I had a conversation with my wife. We were discussing the festivities around the Euro finals, and I was talking about that iconic image of the, uh, the, the celebratory patriotic reveller with a firework up his bottom, And I said to my wife that there have been many nights when I could understand how a man could end up with a celebratory firework up his bottom. And she looked at me like I was a a different species. And hopefully Carol is going to give us some idea of of the the, the firework up bottom behaviour of men. Carol, welcome. Thank you very much for chatting to us. How did you get interested in testosterone and the science of sex differences? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Can I just request that the audience participate in contributing answers to the firework up the bomb question so we can just take that right off my plate uh, from the start? So, yeah, I got into testosterone uh, through a little obviously different avenue than you did, apparently, thankfully. Yeah, there's a lot of places I could start, but I think the logical place to start is Uganda. And my experience out in the Ugandan rainforest, learning how to do research on wild chimps, and that's before I came to Harvard. That was after my first application to Harvard. The Harvard graduate program in biological anthropology was rejected uh, because I didn't have any... I was had been out of college for 10 years. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And then I figured out that I wanted to go get a PhD in biological anthropology. And yeah, I realized I didn't have the right experience. And I eventually, after bothering everybody in the department for quite some time, finally got offered this job out in Uganda. And I really was just driven to understand the evolutionary roots of human behavior. That's what I had really become interested in over time through traveling and reading and taking classes. And I was thrilled when Richard Wrangham, who was directing the Kibali chimpanzee project in Uganda offered me this position out there, which it was supposed to be for a year, but because of extreme violence in the region, I ended up 
getting evacuated after eight months and sent home. But it was my experience with the chimps that focused, really focused my intellectual curiosity on sex differences in humans because what was so striking to me and really quite thrilling were the differences in the behavior of the males and females. And following the males, was it really was just in many ways more exciting because there was always a lot of action. There was sex, there was violence, there was a lot of activity. And following the females was beautiful and peaceful because there, I personally didn't see any female aggression. It happens and it happens at high rates and in some places and with extreme intensity, but that's not what I saw. And what I did see in many ways paralleled the sex differences that we all see in humans and chimpanzees don't have human culture. And I'm not saying that we are just like chimps or chimps are the only relevant species to understanding human behavior and the evolutionary or genetic origins of human behavior. But that was how I was introduced to this perspective and what really turned me on ultimately to testosterone because that along with just the raw forces of natural and sexual selection to me were the most, had the most explanatory power in understanding human behavior and particularly sex difference. That's just what I was drawn to. So that's uh, how I got interested in this subject. And you were, you were collecting samples of urine from chimpanzees in, in Uganda to test them for and feces. testosterone and feces. <laughs> yes, I was. So at that time I was helping with other people's research. So I didn't have my own research program at that point. I later, as a grad student, collected saliva and analyzed that for male testosterone levels. But at that time, yeah, I had some adventures learning how to collect urine from the chimps and pipette it into test tubes. So what would happen is you have to get up really early in the morning before dark, before dawn, and you hike out. We hiked out to where the chimps had built their overnight nests. So they build these nests way up in the trees every night when the sun is going down and sleep up there. And if you want to be there when they wake up so you can follow them all day, you need to hike out to where they had built the nest and then wait until they wake up and they stick their rear ends over the side of the nest and they pee and you build a little contraption with a plastic bag and a, a stick basically. And you catch the pee as it's flowing down from through the leaves. And sometimes the pee catches you on the head or, you know, and you're also trying to get their feces. And then other people were measuring the testosterone levels and trying to understand the relationship between testosterone and all kinds of behaviors, especially sex and aggression, because that's where it's most relevant and, and male, male, other types of male, male competition. And let's, okay. So let's, let's sort of pause that and we can bring that into humans in a bit, but tell us just the basics. What, what, what is a hormone? So hormones are chemicals that we produce in various glands. Most people have heard of the pancreas and that produces insulin, for instance. And we have our gonads, the ovaries and testes that produce reproductive hormones, estro mostly estrogen and progesterone in females and 
androgens, mainly testosterone in males. Uh, and there's tons of other hormones that we produce, but insulin is a good example because this is a hormone that helps us survive by regulating how we use energy, especially how we use glucose. And what's interesting about insulin and so many hormones that have actions in our bodies is that they at the same time shape our brain and influence us to engage in certain behaviors that are relevant, that are relevant to the actions that they have in the body. So insulin, when our, say our blood sugar is low and insulin levels are low, that insulin signals that information to our brain and that motivates us to go find food, right? So it has these dual effects in our body. And what's really interesting about the reproductive hormones, and let's just take testosterone, for example, it has really important actions in the body that don't have to do so much with survival, but have to do really with reproduction. So in males, testosterone starts way back in utero, shaping the brain and the body. So it masculinizes the genitalia, it gives little boys a penis, basically. That is what you need to grow a penis. If you don't have testosterone, the structure that could become basically the penis or the clitoris, if you have high levels of testosterone, it will develop into a penis. If you don't, it's going to be more like a clitoris and you'll develop a vagina. And then it also acts in the brain, and we can talk about that later. But at this, then in adolescence, it controls the production of sperm. So it helps us, it helps males reproduce by controlling the production of sperm and pairing that with other physical traits that men would have really needed, especially in our evolutionary past and to some degree today, to compete for mates. Because that is relative to females, a way that males can increase their reproductive success or the number of offspring that they have over a lifetime. So larger body size, more muscle mass. And it would be odd if males developed a larger body size and more muscle mass, if there were similar, you know, similar to what insulin does by acting on appetite, it would be odd if males didn't also sort of come predisposed to use aggression to compete for mates. And we see that playing out in today's world. But testosterone does all of these things for males and pairs all of these different, the development and maintenance of all of these different traits, which are physical and behavioral, just like a lot of the other hormones do. Uh, but it's really centered around what males need to do to efficiently convert energy into offspring. And females need to do something different because especially in mammals, we are the ones who grow the babies in our own bodies. Men don't, you know, male mammals do not do that, including men. So, so we don't have testosterone, high levels of testosterone. We're not converting our energy into muscle. We're converting it into fat because that's what we need to do to reproduce. And there's all kinds of obviously implications about the differences then in fat and muscle and body size. But yeah, you only asked what a hormone was, and I give you a much longer <laughs> answer. So you talk in the book about how insulin, high insulin is a signal that says lots of energy here, use it. And high sperm, or rather high testosterone is a signal here, lots of sperm, use it. Is there anything special about testosterone? Could, could we have evolved so that insulin was the signal that says lots of sperm and testosterone was the signal that says 
lots of energy. Is there anything? Is it just a messenger or is it? No, it's they're different. So what the and and they're different for. Uh, they're different partly because chemically they're very different. So, but the, that chemical differences turns out to be very important. So testosterone is a steroid. Steroids are lipophilic and they can get right through cell membranes. They can go right into your brain. No problem. They don't, you don't have to use energy to transport steroids into your brain. They can go into every tissue basically. And the way that they work as opposed to protein hormones, which is what insulin is. So insulin cannot, is a, the protein hormones cannot get right into the cells. They have to act at the cell surface. So they have shorter term actions, like open up a little channel to let glucose into the cell. Glucose comes in, homeostasis is achieved, say. But if you want to coordinate the transition of a boy into a sexually viable adult, i.e. a man, there are lots of processes that have to be coordinated over a long period of time. So the way that that works with steroids, estrogen and progesterone, so obviously girls into reproductively viable adults, i.e. women, the steroids are able to control gene transcription. And that is a much longer term, longer lasting effect. And testosterone acts on all these different tissues, including the reproductive tissues, the secondary sex characteristics, and the brain to coordinate these large-scale processes over long periods of time. So that's kind of the difference between, say, the steroid hormones and the protein hormones. So it couldn't have been insulin because insulin wouldn't be able to have those long-term effects. And you, you spoke a bit about the different pressures on men and women, the sexual selection how is my how are my reproductive goals different from yours what what am i looking to do when i go on a night out that perhaps you're not so those are two different questions cuz we both we have the same reproductive goals that is as efficiently as possible convert energy into offspring and you have different strategies potentially that you are perhaps prone to use or might be tempted to use or will try to use to achieve that goal, right? So your strategy relative to mine would be seeking additional mates while not compromising. You, you, you have three kids, right? Yes. Okay. So sorry. So you probably, if you're going to be a good investing dad and you want to increase the probability that those kids are going to go on to survive and then reproduce themselves, you're going to be investing energy in your mate and in your offspring. That's going to take away from your ability to compete on the open market for additional mates. Doing that might really not does. be the best strategy. Okay. Yes. And your testosterone's probably lower than it was before you had your little baby, right? Or your kids. So testosterone does respond to what's going on in the environment in ways that are tend to be adaptive. So if you have little ones, you're interacting with them, your testosterone, and this happens also in birds where the males spend a lot of time caring for the offspring and their investment is essential to their survival and future reproductive success. So yes, you have different strategies on average. My strategy has to be survive have a long, healthy life, build up enough fat and resources to provide for my offspring. Because in the ancestral environment, I would have had several children by now. I wouldn't just have the one that I have. I would have been pregnant and breastfeeding, basically, for most of my reproductive, in fact, all of my reproductive career. I would have had a lot of kids and grandkids by now. 
And that's important to remember. That's what I'm built to do via evolution. You don't have those pressures, I'll say, or those requirements for reproduction. So on average, yes, you're going to be tempted when it, you'll be tempted to, if you're not going to risk your reproductive success and, and if it's going to benefit you to find additional mates. If I'm already pregnant, obviously that's not going to benefit me and it may harm my primary mating relationship, right? If I go out and look for additional mates, I could be risking the investment of my partner because he might doubt that the kids that I have are his. So that's not necessarily going to pay off for me. But on average in humans, yes, males are biased relative to females to seeking out more mates and have an increased preference for sexual variety. And that's just a super clear finding that's prevalent in every culture that's ever been studied. It's to expressed to different degrees in different cultures because culture is incredibly important in shaping our human natures and, and how, and sorry, shaping the way we express our human natures. And I think that's an important point. I think our natures are kind of pretty fixed to some degree, but how we can express them in a given society is, is very, very malleable, of course, as we see. Okay. So now I think we need to hear some evidence because, you know, what I'm hearing is, is you justifying a patriarchal status quo in which, Women stay at home, look after the kids. I run around beating people up, competing, doing the glamorous stuff and having lots of sexual partners whilst you get judged for the same. It it just sounds to me like you're justifying an unfair status quo for whatever misogynistic reasons you have. Yes. What? So, and I know you're just being funny, um, (laughs) but you're not just being funny because that is the criticism of this particular, that is one reason that people resist biological explanations for human behavior, particularly of sex differences, because of patriarchy and men having more power than women, the fact that discrimination and sexual inequality does exist. And it can sound like what I'm saying is, in fact, justifying these behaviors that are many, you know, male behaviors that are incredibly problematic. Now, nothing in what I've said justifies any particular behavior. And if you think it does, you're committing what's called the naturalistic fallacy, which is the idea that what exists in nature is good or that it can, that behavior is validated when we find evidence for the cause of that behavior in nature. That's just a logical error. There are plenty of aspects of our natures and behaviors that are basically natural that are terrible and that we all agree should be eradicated and we should do whatever we can to tamp them down. And I would say extreme male aggression is one of those things. It's something that is a huge problem. And if we close our eyes to all of the information that we have available to us about what causes something like extreme male aggression or sexual assault, we are not doing everything we can. And I would say as feminists to solve these complicated problems, which are always the result of gene environment interactions. And we know that that's the case because everywhere around the globe, males commit more sexual assault by far and murder, for instance, than females But the size of that sex difference can be dramatically narrowed, and that's because the male rates of those behaviors are reduced in cultures that do not tolerate those behaviors, like Singapore, which I mention in the book. You know, 
you may not approve of their tactics, but it is evidence that culture can have a massive effect on these behaviors that we know are problematic. So there's really nothing about the facts of biology that justify any of the behaviors uh, that we think are problematic. But I just want to make sure we don't forget about all of the positive aspects of masculinity that are also facts that people forget about and ignore. And what are they? <laughs> well, first of all, you're a dad, right? So you... and. Only 5%, uh, in only 5% of mammals, do we see these, this high intense level of paternal investment where the, the males really invest heavily in their offspring by providing resources, protecting, and in humans, you know, there's this incredible emotional bond. So I think that's one really positive aspect of masculinity that can be supported and amplified by cultural norms. And we see that to some degree in Western cultures. And that's incredibly important. Another positive aspect of masculinity, and a lot of people don't like to hear this, but it is a fact that men are far more willing to risk their lives to protect others, even those that are complete strangers. So they will engage in actions that expose themselves to physical risk and even death to help and protect even complete strangers. Females can do the same. They're certainly capable of that, but they do it at much, much lower rates and it tends to be their own children. So that, so there's a lot, and I, I could go on about the positive aspects of masculinity, but those are, I think, two good examples. And what about the evidence? So you, you've, you've talked in, in general terms about lots of things, about sex differences, about testosterone. But in terms of testosterone itself, what is the evidence for its effects on people's behaviour, I guess, rather than... There'll be a lot of people listening to this or watching this that'll think, well, what about all of these massive social influences? There's, there's one, in fact, there's one study, there's, there's loads of really compelling stuff. There's one study that's perhaps less compelling, but I think really interesting that you talk about, about football supporters being tested for testosterone levels during a match. Oh, yes. So that's a different kind of evidence. So remind me to get to that because I don't think that's okay. the most. No, no, that's no, sort talk, of that's talk, interesting. And, and it does, what, what, and we should talk about this because the what you're talking about illustrates that testosterone levels can be heavily shaped by the environment. So our biology doesn't just shape our behavior in a vacuum. There's a reciprocal, you know, ongoing complex relationship between the way that our genes are expressed and our behavior, obviously, and what's going on in our environment. And our environment contains sophisticated human culture, which is highly, highly gendered. So it's very, sometimes very difficult to imagine that our own genes and things like differences in sex hormones are having a big impact when we see all around us these influences that could so obviously and do shape the way that we express ourselves in gendered ways. However, when you look at the evidence from non-human animals, and you look at, and that's experimental evidence, and that's also just observational evidence where we measure testosterone levels and look at different behaviors, but also we can manipulate testosterone levels in a bunch of different kinds of animals. And what we see really mirrors what we would expect and what we see in humans, which is that when we reduce testosterone or we look at animals female animals that have very low levels of testosterone, we see very similar patterns to what we see in humans, which is 
high levels of testosterone, male typical levels of testosterone are in fact associated with high levels relative to females of physical aggression and the competing for mates. And relative to females, those with high testosterone tend to pursue as many mates as possible in, in many species. Of course, there are some, there are species that are socially monogamous, but overall males are competing for additional mates and it's testosterone that facilitates the sexual behavior and the aggressive behavior. And in humans, first of all, we have the sex differences in testosterone that predict those behaviors. So they're higher in males and tend to be lower in females. But we also have cases where in particular, female fetuses are exposed to unusually or atypically high levels of testosterone for their sex. So female fetuses will basically, uh, without any testosterone whatsoever, or very, very low levels of testosterone will be feminized. They will tend to show typical female behavior. But if, as in the case with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where female fetuses produce higher than average levels of testosterone, those girls end up being more masculinized in their interests as kids and as adults. They play more like boys. So they want to tackle each other and have this physical play that is much more characteristic of boys. I mean, most people can see that with their own two eyes, but that's not because society is conditioning boys to do that. We see the same kinds of sex differences in non-human animals where male juvenile animals of all kinds engage in that physical rough and tumble play. And you can manipulate the expression of that by manipulating prenatal testosterone. And that's what we see in humans where girls who have this unusually high level in utero show higher rates of rough and tumble play for one thing, tend to want to play with the toys that are more typical, you know, of boys. And then even in adulthood, in adulthood, they tend to gravitate relative to females who don't have this condition, which is corrected at birth. So those hormone levels are correct at birth. They will tend to gravitate towards more male typical professions where they work more with things than people, for instance. So that's just one kind of evidence, but there's lots more. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared.
Well, one of the things I found quite interesting in your book as well is, is the evidence, the testimony from transgender people who have moved from female to male through taking a lot of testosterone. What, what sort of things do they, they say? Yeah, so that I found that also one of the most fascinating parts of my research for the book. So I interviewed a male to female transgender person, a female to male transgender person, a non-binary 12-year-old who was taking puberty blockers, and a detransitioner who went from female to male and then back to female again. And I let them tell their stories in the book, but I also really dove into the relevant scientific literature and it really matched overall what these people were telling me. So for the female to male transgender people in general, and I just want to say that there's a huge amount of variation in people's experiences, but there are some effects of going from a female level of testosterone to male level that are fairly consistent. The number one thing that change that people talk about probably won't be a surprise to most people. And that's sex. That's this, you know, people, it seems like their brains and bodies kind of explode when you live as a woman and then you take male levels of testosterone. And even before the body begins to change and the muscles grow and the facial hair comes in and the voice deepens, even before that, people describe feeling something like what a male puberty must feel like. I haven't gone through it, but Everyone I've talked to says you were just consumed with thoughts of sex during puberty. It can be difficult and overwhelming. And some people even feel ashamed of their sexual thoughts. But what's interesting is people who went from living as women and potentially being objectified by men sexually start to do it after they transition. They start to feel that they're beginning to objectify if they're attracted to women, then women, if they're attracted to men, then men. But the urgency of the sexual impulse seems to really increase. The libido goes up and this tendency to objectify increases. That can level out over time after people are on testosterone for many years, but it certainly is, seems to be the most pronounced effect is like people say, okay, I get it now, what it's like to be a man. And the challenge is, that men face that are particular that are caused by this hormone. And that gave me a, a different, certainly different view of things. And it, it went along with a overall, again, there's lots of variation of people's experiences, but a reduction in the ability to, I'll just say, get in touch with a range of emotions. So anger seemed to be one emotion that was retained. It, I didn't see much evidence that it goes up, but it's that other sort of more vulnerable, vulnerable emotions like fear, anxiety, or the expression of those feelings through crying is really tamped down. So people would say they kind of feel like they want to express those emotions, but they couldn't get in touch with them. And they would overall stop crying. People who went from crying few times a week would just basically stop and cry maybe once or twice a year. So those were some of the most pronounced effects. And I, I did find that fascinating. That affected my relationship with my husband too, because I think I started accepting him more just for who he is. 
rather than trying to get him to be like me and not really understanding, you know, even that, though I've studied testosterone for ages, it was really the transgender literature that helped me there. I've got plenty of um, questions I can ask, but um, we've got a few questions in the audience chat now that I think I think play quite nicely into this. One of the questions is, what role does testosterone play in gay male relationships where reproduction isn't by definition the goal? You've, you've got a little bit on this, haven't you? Yeah, and I love this area because I think it's really illuminating. So first of all, just some observations about gay male sexual culture, which is that if two men are, if men, not just two men, but if men are in sort of a sexual marketplace and other men are their, the target of their sexual interest, of course, you're going to have a very different dynamic than in a heterosexual sexual marketplace where the target of men's sexual interest is going to be women because men then have to figure out basically how to, I'll just say, well, no, I won't, how to acquire a mate, say, or have sex with somebody, right? So sometimes they're just trying to strategize or manipulate or, but if it's men wanting to have sex with other men in general, relative to men wanting to have sex with women, men wanting to have sex with men understand each other and are generally on the same page and have less of a problem with being objectified. And so what you see is a lot more sex with a lot more partners. And that's just a fact about gay sexual culture. You know, there's no judgment there. It's just an, it's just an observation that we can see and that we can really learn something about male sexuality when sort of unrestricted or, or unlimited by female reluctance. There's just a lot more of it. And so from my point of view, that is a fully masculine sexuality. That's just, it's, it's expressed much more freely. And it suggests that testo- that the evidence that there's no difference in testosterone levels, first of all, between gay men and heterosexual men. And that makes sense if you think about sexuality as being one of the most important components of a male sexual strategy, because this is a masculinized sexuality. And if testosterone is a masculinizing hormone, then we shouldn't necessarily expect it to be lower in gay men. So what I'm saying is we don't know what the role of, if any, of testosterone in male homosexuality is. I think it's a really interesting question. There could be something going on prenatally that has to do with epigenetics, which is the different, not differences in genes themselves necessarily, but the way that genes are expressed. There could be different testosterone levels at different times, but we just don't see the evidence in in men for any testosterone differences that would predict homosexuality. But we do see that in women. So there is some evidence that lesbians were exposed to higher levels than average of testosterone in utero. And that's um, that's not the most, those aren't the most robust findings in the world, but that is where the evidence points there. And I think that's interesting. Females are very sensitive to increases in testosterone. Which I think leads into, I'm going to take two questions together there. So one question is, how does testosterone work on women? And then there's also a question from Sarah. Do, do put in your names if you, if you want to get a name check. Hi, Sarah. You're the only one who's put in a name so far. Where um, she asks, how does estrogen influence female behavior? And does it have much as much impact as T in men? 
Sarah. So that's Sarah's question. So Sarah's question is that uh, about estrogen and is it as important? And then the other question uh, is about what testosterone itself does in women. Okay. This is great. I love these questions because estrogen, first of all, in non-human animals, so a lot of non-human animals just take seasonal breeders. Is So estrogen is the hormone that motivates sexual behavior. So outside of estrus, many female animals will have show no interest sexually in males. They will, in fact, attack strange males. But when they're able to get pregnant and their estrogen is high, this changes everything and they their libido goes up and they show it and they become very eager for sex. And that's obvious. And that is via estrogen. So it also seems that in humans, so there are women who have exceedingly low levels of testosterone and they tend to have no, there's no relationship between female levels of testosterone and libido with uh, in reproductive age women. So what testosterone does in women, first of all, needs to be studied more. But in, in my research, it does not appear to be as important as a lot of people seem to want to make it. There's potentially some role in ovulation, but we know that women who don't have much testosterone at all, which is almost all women relative to men anyway, they have perfectly normal libidos and sexual function. If women take testosterone supplements, they typically won't feel any effect until they get out of the typical female range. And when that happens, they might start to develop some secondary sex characteristics that they find undesirable, like facial hair or deepening of the voice. And that suggests that it's really going into the male level that causes masculinization and the really the increase in sex drive and potentially aggression. So yeah, little changes, the muscle mass is affected and athletic ability is affected in women when testosterone goes up, but behaviorally, there's not a lot of evidence within the normal range yeah. for serious effects. There are some absolutely fantastic questions in the, in the chat, so I'm going to try to get through as many as possible. Uh, and I'm going to try to take take them. I'll, I'll try to take them linked where where I can. So there's 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 one which is can we hear more positive examples about testosterone in men? And then straight after it, there's another which is the vast majority of wars are started and fought by men. Is that partly because of testosterone? I think that's probably one of the biggest violence is one of the biggest gender differences that we see consistently. And if so, should men be forbidden from being political leaders for the sake of all humanity? Okay, sorry. So let's just, I want to keep that one in mind. But what was the one that came first? More positive examples of testosterone in men, not just yeah, beating people no. up and then having sex with their women. Yes, that's where the research is because these are prob these are problems that need to be solved. But if we the a lot of the positive aspects of masculinity, I believe, are associated with having high testosterone, but I don't have the studies that I can say, you know, um show clearly that sort of pro-social behavior is tightly related to testosterone. More and more research is being done in this area. And I think it's really important and really interesting. And it points towards male cooperation as 
particularly important and possibly facilitated by higher levels of testosterone. So even in war, some wars are fought for very good reasons. And some of this success in war, if you can call it that, is due to male bonding, the very, very tight bonds that especially men form that could be considered positive uh, in, in different kinds of circumstances. But it also shows that men are capable of a kind of cooperation and very fast reconciliation from conflict that does seem to be related to higher levels of testosterone. So the male hierarchy seems to be facilitated by higher testosterone. And while there are conflicts and while there is aggression within a community, when those conflicts can be solved quickly, then the hierarchy can be reestablished and males can tend to cooperate to advance the needs of their group. And so, I, again, I can't say that there's any particular study or, or body of work right now that is very robust, but there's also something like a male drive to achieve certain goals to create things that also could be related to testosterone. But again, that's just me sort of hypothesizing without a lot of robust evidence. About the, the war question, I didn't go there in my book because it's such a, a big, important question. And the evidence, again, is kind of loosey-goosey. I, I think, yes, that first of all, physical aggression is males do have a predisposition towards physical aggression to trying to defend a particular territory and to cooperating with other males to do that and do that aggressively. That seems to be related to higher testosterone levels for various reasons. Males tend to have lower empathy, lower fear, and there is some evidence that those traits are related to that testosterone inhibits the expression of those traits. But there's Richard Rangham, who I talked about earlier, has written extensively about two types of aggression. One is uh, reactive and one is proactive. And proactive is sort of a calm, rational planning that you would see in war where men, mostly men, are working together and using language to plan out attacks. That's not so clear that that is related, that kind of aggression is related, you know, without physical arousal to higher testosterone. But the reactive aggression seems clear, you know, that when you're aroused and angry and your heart's racing and your adrenaline's up, that does seem to be related to higher levels of testosterone. So there's there's two other topics I want I want to take. Um, we've, we've we've got a little bit of time. One of them I think would be wrong if we didn't because this is so current and and so important. And in your book, you're very clear on this that you're not take you're saying what the evidence is, but you're not taking a particular position because it's so hard. But what does your research say about how testosterone affects fairness in sports? There's you you talk a lot about Casta Semenya, and the 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 question is asking you know, specifically transgender people in women's competitions. And I guess the idea that by moderating the testosterone levels, you can maybe level out the playing field. But it's as, as you show in the book, it's, it's hugely complex, I think. But talk us through. Yes. So obviously, that's controversial and sensitive. And I just want to pick up on one thing you said, which is how does the evidence bear on fairness in sports? So I don't think it does directly bear on the fairness issue. It bears on the advantage issue. Do people who have gone through a male, who are born male and go through a male puberty retain a, an athletic advantage 
even after they reduce their testosterone levels. So that is the sort of question at play. The answer is easy. It's yes. I mean, it, it seems to most people that it's obvious that the answer is yes, and it is. And there's a lot of evidence that I can talk about that explains why that is the case. However, people are trying to use the science of testosterone to make their case that trans women should be able to compete in the female category, even in the Olympics, as is happening this year with Laurel Hubbard, that they should be able to because testosterone is not that important or its effects on strength and body size and muscle mass and hemoglobin, et cetera, all, you know, really significantly diminish after blocking testosterone. But the science is clear and there is an advantage. And I will talk about that in just a second. But to me, that's not the issue. The issue is what are the human rights of trans women in particular? And what do we do about this really complex situation where you have these talented athletes who identify as women who want to compete in the female category? So there are human rights issues there to consider. And I don't think that we're having that conversation in the way that we should because people are so busy arguing about the science. So the science is clear. Men are bigger and stronger than women because of testosterone, because they go through male puberty. So prior to the age of 10, boys and girls are not very different in terms of their um, athletic ability. You're not going to get like almost all boys beating almost all girls in a road race. But as the testosterone levels start to diverge, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that is just maps on perfectly to the growing male advantage in almost every sport. And they have an advantage because they have twice as much muscle as females and females have twice as much body fat. You're just carrying around a bunch of dead weight and you have less muscle. You're smaller. You have reduced bone strength. You have lower hemoglobin. All of these things give men a huge advantage. And only some of those advantages that are accrued in puberty decline significantly when testosterone is blocked after transition. So hemoglobin levels plummet with the testosterone drop. But after a year on testosterone blockers, only about five to 10% of the muscle mass is lost. And especially if you're talking about upper body and like weightlifting, people born male have about 40 40 to 50% more upper body musculature. And you're only seeing a five to 10% loss there after a year, you will get, there's a huge amount of variation, but overall that advantage is retained and it does not disappear. And the, you know, bone strength never disappears. The body size obviously doesn't disappear. Grip strength is a massive advantage for people born male, even when they block testosterone. So many of those benefits, most of them, I would say are retained even after blocking testosterone, but it plays out different ways in different sports because different kinds of abilities are, will promote success in different sports. So it's not, you know, it may be that Laurel Hubbard ends up not beating everybody else because for one reason she's 43. So she's, all things are not equal. Like she's much older than the other women in the female category who seem to be about half that age, or at least in their 20s. So there are some differences there. She's not at the peak of her 
physical capacity. So there's no guarantee that she's going to win. But on average, all other things being equal, yes, trans women who have gone through a male puberty will have an advantage. But what you do with that information, I think, is a really complicated question. I think we probably need to move on to, so there, there are two very long questions, and I'll read them out, and I think you'll get what they're, they're getting at. So the, the, the first is, much of the evidence behind the stereotypical picture of T levels as fixed with inevitable effects on behaviour is based on studies of non-human animals. Social neuroendocrinologists such as Sari Vernandez have demonstrated that the social context of hormone effects is much more powerful in humans, e.g. the variation in testosterone levels between human males who are the primary carers of their newborn offspring and those who are not. Do you think your book has fairly represented this important difference? And the second question, which is the same theme, I don't think you'll really need to remember different things, is you seem to be implying that women's libido is generally less pronounced than that of men, and that this is ordained, as it were, by biology, but surely that is an extremely unliberated view of women's sexuality, which was reinforced for centuries by religion and puritanical patriarchal culture. So I, th- I think essentially, you know, are you, you, you see things the state they are now, and you're explaining why it's the state they are now, and it happens sometimes that it's to the disadvantage of women, but here you are justifying it. I mean, I, I think you're, you're familiar with the line of questioning and I think it merits an answer. Yes. And I am totally sympathetic to the perspective of these two questioners. And I agree with most of what they're saying. Uh, so I guess I'll just tackle the second one first. Definitely culture has a huge impact on, um, First of all, the way that women answer questions in these studies that people are conducting that show that they have a reduced libido. There is some bias there in some of that work. There is a history, and it's not just a history. Women's, the ability of women to freely express their sexuality doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. So we don't know what it would be like if there were, if women were allowed in terms of cultural norms to fully express their um, sexual nature. We we can't know that because, yes, patriarchy, uh, mostly males have control over female sexuality to a pretty high degree in many cultures. So I that is all totally right. Culture matters. It shapes the way that uh, both sexes can express their natures. However, uh, the reason that I believe that testosterone is a super important factor in shaping the the desire for sexual variety and libido is because of all of the evidence, the confluence of evidence from humans and non-human animals. I mean, just look at the consistent reports of people who go to female to male testosterone levels. Um, The libido skyrockets and every single place in the globe, men around the globe, men report a higher libido. And, and you could say that that is the pro that patriarchy exists everywhere, but it also seems to, to some degree map onto what we see in uh, non-human animals and just also evolutionary logic where male animals need a psychological mechanism to motivate them to, mate with additional, you know, more sexual partners than females on average. And that's a perfect mechanism. So um, I, you know, again, I agree with that perspective. Social and, and the other, the Sari Van Anders comment is also 
pretty much right on that culture is incredibly important, that what happens and, and the environment, what happens in the environment has a large impact on our biology, on our, on our hormones, what we eat, whether we have kids, what religion we are, what kind of family we're in, um, how much sunlight we're getting during the day. All of these things are important in humans and in non-human animals. Um, so, and that's just really important to keep in mind. So I'm definitely not saying that culture isn't important. In fact, it's the most important thing. I mean, in terms of shaping our behavior, because we have our natures, we have our hormones, and we know that culture can have a powerful influence in how we express our, our natures. In, so in your book, um, you, you talk a lot about other books. There's a, I, I guess, a, a sort of industry, there are many people who've been written books saying essentially the, the, the opposite of you to an extent, that really testosterone's effects are, are massively overplayed. And, and all we are seeing is society, you know, social effects playing out. You're very nice to them in a way that I, I guess if I was an evolutionary determinist would say be a perfect example of female intrasexual competition. You sort of, you're very, you're very nice to them in, in a way that, that makes, makes it quite clear they're sort of your, your, they're sort of your frenemies. What is it that they're getting wrong? What is it that this, this idea is getting wrong? Well, I'm, I'm glad you said I was nice to them because I, I did feel nervous about even, you know, criticizing their arguments even a little bit because I respect these women and I think they're really smart and thoughtful. But we are coming at this issue from very different perspectives. And I see them as coming at this from, and, and you know, I, I think that this is a justified comment that they're coming at it from an activist perspective rather than from a purely scientific perspective where they're just working as hard as they can to understand the reality as they see it in a dispassionate way that is separate from any political or social agenda. In fact, they make their agenda, they typically make their social agendas very explicit in their work. And I think that is too bad. That's not the role of science. That shouldn't be the role of scientists and the people who these views that are getting sort of embraced and given a lot of press, and I'm just going to have to say the mainstream media are views that run counter to what I'm saying, because I think people, some people believe that if biology isn't that important, and if men and women really aren't that different by nature, then we can have hope for a better society. And But in order to have that hope, and in order to show that we can have sex equality, we need to show that the sexes are basically the same biologically. And I think that's a huge mistake because we're missing out on so much valuable information, first of all, and people are getting confused about science because it's not matching what they observe in the world. And they, I think people know that they're not getting the truth, especially via the media. And it's these, a lot of activists who are now taken as the experts in these areas, even if they don't have any training, any formal training in evolutionary biology or endocrinology, they seem to come in because they're working to promote the goals of like the rights of trans women to participate in sports or the rights of athletes who have differences or disorders of sexual development, like Castor Semenya, to be able to compete in women's sports or certain feminist agendas. But in my view, that's a, that is a mistake. We can fight for all of that. We can fight for what we believe in and increasing human rights and reducing suffering and increasing equality. That is totally compatible with an understanding of reality. In fact, 
all of that is only facilitated and promoted by understanding the facts, being literate in science, and then understanding what to do with the implications of that science. That's where the errors are being made. Just because male and female are two different things does not mean that people can't have equal rights. And that's so basic to me and important to me. And as a science educator, that is a hill I will die on because science, that is, a, that has changed my life. It's empowered me and how I understand the world. And having these tools is something I want to give to everybody else so that they can, you know, have that expanse of like being really sharp and learning to be unbiased, even when something feels offensive or painful, learning what to do with that information and respecting people enough to know that they can handle it. They can use it. It's helping them. I'm not going to make decisions about what people should or should not know or can or cannot handle. I want to teach them how to think clearly and critically and use scientific facts, you know, hopefully to make the world a better place ultimately. I think, I think we just, we just have time for one quite intriguing question, uh, definitely morally charged before we have to have a hard stop at seven. So someone has asked him, would you support parents where the mum is carrying a female fetus to introduce a slightly higher level of testosterone in utero as a way to create more distinctive interests in their soon to be daughter? And would it be medically feasible? Wait, um, distinctive interests? <laughs> I think maybe could sure. you, if you wanted to make a more tomboy boyish daughter, would it be possible? Would it be effective as a strategy beyond a sort of population level strategy? And in, in an individual case, is this something that would would produce the differences? And, and is this is this a good idea? So I think it would produce the difference. I think if you managed to increase the testosterone level in your female fetus, that you would see the effect that you're after. Whether that's ethical, my intuition is no, <laughs> um, but that is not my, I'm not a uh, medical ethicist. Yes, but my intuition there is don't mess with it. And it might, you might get something that you didn't plan for and you should just be happy to have a healthy kid and get your girl that like I played baseball. I was really into it. I was pretty much of a tomboy and you know, my son, I tried to get him to play baseball. He hated it. He got hit and that's how he got on base. So I just, you know, there's all kinds of natural variety. He had way more testosterone than I did in utero. And he's, I was feel like I was much more and much more masculine probably than he is. So you don't know exactly what you're going to get. And yeah. That's an, but it's an interesting question. Well, look, thank you very much. Uh, there are many interesting questions. We got through a lot of interesting questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your particular interesting question. It's no reflection on you. We've just run out of time. The book is Testosterone, the story of the hormone that divides, dominates and divides us. Thank you very much indeed, Carol, for chatting to us about it. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure.